0: Well, I imagine Israel as they're hearing this story is probably wondering the same exact thing. They might even be wondering, is this the right Moses, the son of Amram? I can't imagine the Moses I've seen being this stubborn before God. Praise to the who reigns above. You know, Moses. The problem of where he is right now and why he is right now is because when God called him, that's how he saw himself. I'm God's little helper.
1: And descends in perfect love.
0: And he's tried to help God out. But Moses wasn't God's helper. The The work to free Israel from Egypt was all God's, right? All God's. And Moses was to be God's servant in that process. Not his sidekick or his helper. And so I'd ask you tonight, which are you?
1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. So far in Exodus, we saw that God called Moses to lead the children of Israel out of their enslavement in Egypt. In chapter 5, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh with a proposition to let the Israelites go into the wilderness to worship. Pharaoh denied the request and made life harder for the Israelites by taking away the straw they used to build with. Moses was angry with God. God responded to Moses by reminding him of who their God is and by giving the nation promises. We pick up with Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 6 verse 6.
0: In verse 6, here he says, Say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. That's the same phrase he starts off the conversation with Moses. He says, I am the Lord. This is important because he's not saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is that. But he's not saying that to them now because now he's saying, I'm going to be your God. That's in the past. I'm telling you now how I will be known to you because I'm going to do a new work in your midst. And then God makes these precious promises to them just like he did with their forefathers. And he starts off by saying, I will bring you out of Egypt. I will bring you out from under the burdens, the forced labor of the Egyptians. And I will rid you out of their bondage. I'm going to rescue you out of danger and make you safe. I'm going to rescue you out of danger and make you safe from this slavery. See, Egypt had a claim on all of those people. And God tells them, they'll have no claim on you anymore. You'll be safe from them. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. The word redeem means to purchase back that which had been sold. They had not sold themselves. We do that with our sin. We know the picture or the type. But they had come under bondage through deceit and subtlety, is what the word tells us. And they became slaves owned by the Egyptians less than animals. But God says, I'm going to purchase you back. I'm going to purchase you back. You've come under sold sale to them, but I'm going to purchase you back to myself. And I will do so with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. You know, the Israelites would be used to seeing all the Egyptian deities with their stretched out arms. You see a lot of the sphinxes, their arms are in front or on their their knees or things like that. Their arms are outstretched. They would be very familiar with that sight. The reason it was that way is because the stretched out arms signified their irresistible might and power. You know, these strong, powerful deities. God says, I will show you what Power and might really looks like with my stretched out arm and with great judgments. One of the cool things when we go through here, I don't know for sure, so I'm giving you my opinion here, which is worth zero. But in the New Testament, Paul says this. He goes, "Don't you know that he that eats meat offered to idols is eating meat that's been sacrificed to a demon?" Right? He actually says there's an entity behind that, and I've always wondered, like, what does that mean? You know, is there an entity like a Wicked spirit or a spiritual force that's behind idolatry. I wouldn't be shocked at all if that was the case. So it's interesting because God, on many occasions throughout these next three or four books of the Old Testament, He's going to say that He's executing judgment or He executed judgment upon the gods of Egypt. It's almost like, you know, God is saying, I'm going to war, man. I'm going to show these guys what's up because he lays them low. When we get to the plagues, we're going to see that every plague is specifically designed to show God's superiority over Egypt's so-called gods. You know, for example, they worship the Nile. It's going to be, he's going to turn it into blood. It's like he killed their God. God's dead. He's bleeding. He's got nothing left. No more life-giving power. Every one of those plagues are going to go that until it consummates with the very idea of Pharaoh himself who is a God, and he can't even have the power to rescue and keep his own firstborn son. God says, I'm going to triumph over every one of Egypt's so-called gods. And in the end, this will show that Pharaoh himself is no god, but a man who, like all men, must eventually bow their knee. He says, I will bring you out of Egypt. Verse 7, promise number 2, he says, I will have a relationship with you. He says, I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a god. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, your God, which brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Prior to this, Israel was a foreign people in a foreign land. No deity owned them. They had no one that they could look to for help in the Egyptian pantheon. They were slaves, the property of man and less than even some animals with no worth to any God. But now the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe promises that he will be their champion, that he will be their God. Do you understand now what it means in the New Testament where it talks about how, how we are a chosen out people? First Peter chapter two, verse nine, he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. We are pretty peculiar, aren't we? It means we're set apart people or especially chosen out people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. time passed from not a people, but are now the people of God. You know, to think that he owns me, that he's, he looks to me and he says, you're mine. I, I wouldn't pick me. But he's not ashamed to call us brethren. From the beginning, God wanted a relationship with man and it's no different here with Israel and it's no different now with us. In Hebrews 2, verses 10 and 11, it says to us, that he came, he dwelt among us, he took on our flesh. It says, for it became him, for whom are all things, God made everything for him, by whom are all things, he made everything, in bringing many sons to glory, that's you and me. It became him to make the captain of their salvation, perfect through sufferings, for both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Hebrews eleven, thirteen 13 through 16, God the Father speaking says something about his people. He says, referring to these faithful men that, that by faith did these things, he says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They didn't care that they didn't, they didn't receive the fullness of those promises. And the writer says, for they that say such things declare plainly, openly, that they seek a country looking for something else. What is it? Truly, if they had been mindful of the country from whence they came out of, the slavery, the pit where they were, well, they might have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And because of that, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them (laughs) See, <laughs> you know, I picture my entrance into heaven and be like, hey, Jesus, Jesus. And he's like, oh, no, no, oh, no. Peter, Paul, can you, can you take care of this guy? You know, That's how I picture it. I don't understand why he would look at me and be happy. I don't know why he would look at me and, and think, you know, oh, awesome, my, you're here, my bride. Let me, t- let me introduce you to dad, you know. I don't get that. I'm too acquainted with what's in here. I don't get it. I don't get it. Why it says that He's going to present me faultless, but not even that. Faultless before His throne, with great joy, the Scripture says. Can you fathom that? Yeah. I'm so excited to introduce my kids and my bride to people. These are my kids. They're awesome. They're crazy. They're cool. They're nuts. I love them. You know, this is my beautiful bride. The best thing that ever happened to me. If Jesus would do that for me. That's a pretty good deal. I'll take it. Don't deserve it, but I'll take it. And there's no other country I'd rather seek then. <laughs> so what does it matter? It doesn't work out the way I'd like it to. Well, well, someday, I don't even know what that'll be like, to see him, to touch him, to hear him speak the words himself, his own voice. That's worth it. It's worth it. Well, God, he says to them, I'm not just going to be some deity. I'm going to I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be your God. And I'm going to take you to me for a people. You're going to be my people. My special people. And then he says his third promise. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to make you my God. You're going to be my people. And I'm going to bring you into the land. Verse 8. And I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But now I swear it to you. I will give it to you for a heritage, an inheritance a possession for I am the Lord. (laughs) God didn't bring them out of Egypt to wander without a home, but to bring them into the land promised to their forefathers. And now he promises it to them and to the Israelites that had to sound so far-fetched. Remember where they're at right now. I mean, they are in bondage. Everything had been trouble for so many years and now that Moses had come, things had only gotten worse. Last time he made a promise, God, things got worse. And so I think it's interesting that God closes off his promises with a reminder, I am the Lord. Yahweh, Jehovah, whatever you want to call it. I am the one who becomes to his people what his people need him to be. I am the one who is almighty. I am the one who is able to perform whatever it is that you need. And I would ask you here tonight, do you believe that? That he loves you and that he's able to perform whatever your need is to act on your behalf? Moses has his marching orders, and so he goes now to the people of Israel, verse 9. And Moses spoke so, everything God, all the promises, all seven I wills, all three promises. Moses spoke so unto the children of Israel. But look at this. They hearken not unto Moses for anguish of spirit, cruel bondage. Anguish of spirit means lack of spirit, literally. It means to be hopeless, to be so mentally fatigued that you lack any strength to hope. It's a rough spot to be in. And because of their harsh slavery. Sometimes when you're in the midst of horrible pain, clinging to God's promises seems too much. (laughs) It takes all you can do even just to mutter the name Jesus. I've had moments of times when the pain has been so hard and so hurtful. You just get on your face and then through the tears, you just try to eke out the name Jesus. And if you're there right now, know this, it's okay. God is still going to come through for you. You don't have to respond. He's still going to work on your behalf. And maybe you've been trying to reach someone who's in that spot right now. I want to encourage you, don't get frustrated with them. Don't get frustrated because they don't respond well to the truth that you've spoken to them. Realize that what you're sharing with them probably isn't for now, but for when they emerge from this trial and they can actually receive it and see what God has done in their lives. After things go so well with Israel, God sends Moses on his next mission. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, verse 10, saying, "'Go in.'" And speak unto Pharaoh, because everything works so well with Israel. Speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he let the children of Israel go out of his land. And the phrase there, let go, actually, is more forceful. That he send the children of Israel out of his land. You give up your claim on my people. You tell him that. <laughs> and Moses said unto the Lord, he spoke before the Lord, saying, behold. Again, that's like, time out. Hold up, Lord. I mean, see, look, Lord, you're not, you don't understand. You don't, don't you get it, God. This isn't going to work. Why would Pharaoh listen to me when my own people won't? I told you, you've got the wrong guy. And thankfully, he goes on, he says, You know, how then shall Pharaoh hear me who am of uncircumcised lips? Children of Israel have not hearkened unto me. But the Lord, again, he just ignores the comments. Verse 13. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and unto Aaron, apparently he was whining too, and gave them a charge unto the children of Israel and unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. To give a charge means to command. Lord, it's not gonna work. You don't understand. You haven't thought this through. And he says, well, you have your marching order, boys. Let's go, let's go. There's work to be done. By the time Israel is hearing this account, where are they? They're already at Mount Sinai. God's already fulfilled the first part of the promise, right? He's brought them out of Egypt. So the Moses that they know right now, and that probably most of us are familiar with from Scripture... It's radically different than this Moses. At this point, you may not even like Moses very much. <laughs> you might think to yourself, this is the guy? This is Moses? This is his great man of faith? Well, I imagine Israel, as they're hearing this story, is probably wondering the same exact thing. They might even be wondering, is this the right Moses, the son of Amram? I can't imagine the Moses I've seen being this stubborn before God. It says, Moses says, no, it's me, all right. Here's my genealogy, verse 14. Will these be the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben? firstborn of Israel, Hanok, and Pelu, Hezron, and Carmi. These be the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon, and Jemuel, and Jamin, and Ohad, and Jacob, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanitish woman. These are the families of Simeon. And these are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, and Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137 years. And the sons of Gershon were Libni, and Shimei, according to their families. And the sons of Kohath were Amram, and Ishar, and Hebron, and Uziel. And the years of the life life of Kohath were a and thirty and three years. The sons of Merari were Mahali and Mushi. These are the families of Levi according to their generations. He says, No, I'm 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 not Moses. My dad's right there in the line. That's me. You know, when we meet someone, we might say, so tell me about yourself. But in the Middle East, a person did this by telling you about their family. That would tell you everything you needed to know about them. And so Moses, before continuing on, this genealogy almost comes out of the blue, out of nowhere. It's not, it doesn't even feel like it's in context. It's almost like an interruption. And I believe it is because I believe Moses is explaining, no, I'm the guy. (laughs) It's me. Same Moses. And you know what? That shouldn't surprise you because our history It doesn't ever start off good. (laughs) He says, look at Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. He doesn't go beyond there. He gets to his family, and then he stops. But he says, look at these guys, the three first guys. They all got passed up for the birthright. Not exactly shining examples of the family lineage. And I think Moses stops with these three because there's no need to go any farther. He's saying, look, our forefathers struggled too, and I'm not different. And just as God changed many of them when they got older, God did a work in my life too. And that means... He wants to work in your life as well. Do you believe that? He wants to work in not your life, Israel, but your life here today, Calvary Chapel, Orlando. That he wants to work in your life. Are you letting him? Or is your past hindering you from thinking that God could work in your life? You know, there's so many interesting tidbits here in this genealogy, but I don't want to spend too much time on it. Um, Levi's blessing from Jacob is kind of interesting that we see here now. His sons are actually listed here later on. We're gonna learn that the Kohathites, the Merariites, and the Gershonites, they all become the three priestly families, right? Like each of them have a third of the responsibility of the tabernacle worship. But what's the blessing that dad gave to Levi? It was a very short one to Simeon and Levi. He said, Simeon and Levi, man, they're wicked dudes. Don't ever hang around them. Thanks, dad. That was their blessing. And yet look at what God is doing here. Choosing Levi and choosing his three sons are gonna be the ones that end up handling the tabernacle worship. If that's not grace, I don't know what is. Now verse 20, now we get to Moses' specific family. And Amram took him, Jochebed, his father's sister, to wife. She bare him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137 years. So he had died by this time. The sons of Ishar, Korah, and Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel or Michiel and Elizaphan and Zithri again, just pointing out the connections here. No, that's me. I'm I'm this Moses. This would make Jacob, Amram's great grandfather. Now, in most of the other genealogies, there are about eleven generations from entry into Egypt to the Exodus. In 400 years, it's more likely that you had more than just four generations. So it's possible there's some gaps here. That's not a problem though, because Moses's main point isn't to give this massive genealogy. It's to identify him and Aaron as the actual Moses and Aaron of Exodus 5 and 6. In verse 23, now he identifies Aaron. And Aaron took him, Elishaḇa, the daughter of Aminadab, you, you still know her, sister of Nashon, still know him. We're going to find out more about him in Numbers, to wife. And she bare him, and these are the sons they'd be familiar with, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar, and the sons of Korah. Now we're going to learn more about the sons of Korah later on. They're not the best guys, but people knew them. So you know these guys, you know all, this is us. The sons of Korah were Asir and Elkanah, and Abiasaph, these are the families of the Korites. And Eliezer, Aaron's son, took him one of the daughters of Putiel to wife, and she bare him Phinehas. Again, this is a man that will figure prominently in the story later on. These are the heads of the fathers of the Levites, according to their families. These are that Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from their land of Egypt, according to their armies. This is the same guys which spoke to Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. And he says it again, just in case they're still doubting. These are that Moses and Aaron. The whole purpose of this genealogy is to prove, no, this is us. That was who we were, but it's not who we are now. God changed us. And so in verse 28, he now repeats, this is not probably a new event. He just repeats the story to pick it up where he left off. And it came to pass in the day when the Lord spoke unto Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke unto Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak thou unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say unto you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips and how shall Pharaoh hearken unto me. As all of Israel is listening to this and going, it really is you? The obvious question they're thinking is, how in the world did this stubborn guy become the man that's standing before us now? How did this Moses turn into the, as he's gonna later say, the most humble man in all the earth? Well, that's what we get to study the rest of the book of Exodus to find out. The transformation of Moses from stubborn, self-willed, lacking in any type of confidence in God, to the man who will walk Israel through all their trials and troubles in the wilderness at Sinai. He'll go up on the mountain knowing he's got, he doesn't have enough food to last for 40 days and 40 nights, but knowing that God will take care of him. He's probably thinking, God could part the Red Sea. I'm sure he can get food from anywhere. I think I'll be okay. How did that transformation take place? Well, it was by submitting to the Lord and watching him work by becoming a servant instead of God's little helper. So we get to spend the rest of Exodus learning that. But as we close tonight, you know, Moses... The problem of where he is right now and why he is right now is because when God called him, that's how he saw himself. I'm God's little helper. And it's evidenced by this made-up excuse as to why Pharaoh should let Israel go. Hey, we're here from the Lord. He commands us to go out three days in the wilderness to sacrifice. Pharaoh says, no, I don't know who the Lord is. And in fact, you know, I I don't know why I should listen to him. And they panic and they make something up. If you don't let us go, God will kill us, you know? And, And he's tried to help God out. But Moses wasn't God's helper. The work to free Israel. I mean, how many, how many you wills was in those, those three verses? Hey, and Moses, you will, and you will. Were there any? Not a single one. All of it was, I will, I will, I will, I will. The work to free Israel from Egypt was all God's, right? All God's. And Moses was to be God's servant in that process, not his sidekick or his helper. And so I'd ask you tonight, which are you? God will say things in his word and we can get like Sarah and Abraham and try to help him out, right? Or like Jacob. God gives that dream. I love Jacob. Jacob, I relate to this guy because God comes to him and he says, Hey, listen, I'll be with you like I was with your father and with your grandfather. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you the land. He's like, all right. um, Well, I'll tell you what. If I pay you tithes, you take care of me? The Lord's going, "Um, I didn't ask for like a two-sided deal. It was a promise. The answer is yes or no. There's no deal involved here. No, 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 I, I don't want to be, I don't want to deal. I, I'd like to be a sidekick, you know? You know, I want to be your Robin, you know? Right? The Lord doesn't have any of those. He says, I am the Lord. And there's a period. He just has servants. Those that he loves, that he in his grace and mercy allows to be a part of what he does. So which are you? Are you a servant? Or are you his helper? You know, tonight before we leave. It'd be encouraging if we all make sure that we're his servants. Because God made precious promises to us too, didn't he? He's promised us that he would call us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That he would set us upon a hill and use us as lights to a lost and dying world. And are we trusting in his faithfulness as we stay the course? Or are we kind of mixing our own ideas with his way of doing things? Are we trying to help him out? Yeah, I know the Bible says this, but you know, that doesn't work and that's just silly. And so I believe this, but I also do this. That's not going to work because God won't share his glory with anybody. If that offends you, I don't know what to tell you. It's just how it is. But he won't share his glory with anybody. And so as we stand and the worship team comes forward, would you pray with me as we just say, Lord, we just want to be your servants. We just want to know you. Let's all stand. Lord, that you would call me to yourself. that <laughs> That is unbelievable. Even as you called Israel to yourself, we read stories sometimes about their stubbornness and their pride and their selfishness and their self-will and their laziness. Lord, all the various things that we could fit ourselves into there as well. And we think, Lord, you want them too? Lord, you are so interested in having a relationship with them and you are so interested in us too. Beyond that, Lord, that you would use us that you would call us to your purposes. That just blows my mind. Thank you, Lord, for calling us to yourself, to know you, to love you, to understand your love for us. And as you called us to serve in this amazing thing you call redemption, this plan, this Jesus plan, Lord. Here we are. Send us. We wanna just follow you, Lord. That as you accomplish your will, we play our part too. We yield our lives to you now in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. God does not ask us to be his sidekicks or helpers to his work. He wants us to be a vessel for him to do the work through. This means we can be the servants of the king or nothing at all. It is God who does any work. All we must do is allow Him to use us in the ways He's asked us to. In whatever way God is calling you to serve those around you, be open, available, and flexible for Him to lead you in serving others. Should you have questions about anything or like prayer concerning today's message or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today.